Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Election Day here. Uh, folks around the world are paying attention to this midterm elections uh, here in the United States. We're going to check in with uh, one of those, Dr. Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Center on U.S. Politics at University College London. She's got her Ph.D. from American University. That's kind of good. But the real claim to fame, from my perspective, is she is a graduate of Duke. And we are 1-0, right. Katie. Yes, we won last night, so we're 1-0. So here comes Duke, and here comes Dr. Julie Norman. Julie, so from <laughs> your side of the pond, you guys have had a lot of going on political-wise in the U.K., but I'd love to get your sense of just kind of what you're really focusing on here in these midterm elections. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to have a distraction from U.S. politics, but at UK, the U.K. politics did, uh, did take our attention for a while yes. this fall, I must say. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we really are focused on the U.S. Of course, this week, everyone over here is watching the elections very closely as well. Um, you know, like everyone expecting Republicans to take back control of at least part of Congress, uh, you know, if not all of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in Europe and uh, allies especially wondering what this means for U.S. foreign policy and also just for democracy in America more broadly and by association democracy for the whole world. So I think uh, a lot of things are out at play here. I think most voters are, of course, focusing more on inflation, economy, the more day-to-day -day issues. But the world watching this election is seeing some of these uh, these bigger issues play out as well. And I mean, if you had to rank them, you just ran through some of them, obviously, from the perspective of a markets journalist, inflation is a pretty big deal uh, from my perspective. But what's on the ballot here? What is the most pressing issue from the perspective of the average American voter right now? Well, I think obviously just inflation and this rising cost of living. I mean, that's something that no one can escape and people are just feeling at this day-to-day -day level. You know, Democrats have obviously tried to push the uh, democracy message. I think abortion gave them a big bump in the summer. But in terms of what is actually going to get voters out to the polls and actually convince those swing voters, those who don't already know how they're voting, uh, is going to be the economy and how people are feeling this on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Julie, you know, I guess we're going to wake up tomorrow and we'll, we'll know some stuff, but we've been told by a lot of uh, folks that follow this stuff that we're not going to know for several days on some of these races. But presumably a lot of the focus will switch tomorrow to the 2024 election. How do you think, you know, what, what are some of the takeaways from maybe what might be a Republican sweep here uh, today? What does that mean for the Biden administration? Yeah, so I, I do think, you know, this obviously what happens today will lay the groundwork for 2024. Um, I think it will really uh, be sort of a referendum on Biden, of course, and really start serious conversations about uh, if he will run in 2024 and what that means for him. Uh, as we've heard today, a likely announcement sooner rather than later from Trump and what that uh, what these midterms will mean for, for his momentum, perhaps going forward with the candidacy. 
And of course, just the reality that there will be a lot of um, a lot of individuals who doubted or denied the 2020 elections uh, in positions of, of power at the state and federal level going into 2024. For Biden personally, though, you know, he's going to be facing two more years of at best gridlock and at worst, uh, you know, constant attacks likely from the House in terms of investigations into his son, Hunter Biden, his handling of Afghanistan, the handling of COVID, really anything that Republicans can use to keep the focus on what has gone wrong with the administration uh, leading up to 2024 and try and get their own agenda setting in place. So it's going to be an uphill battle for Biden, but one that I think they have to have been expecting to some degree. And there is so much to keep track of tonight. If you're a political junkie, this is your night. But I'd love to hear what race would you love to know the outcome right now? If you could know the outcome of any race at this moment, uh, which would it be? I would probably say Pennsylvania and the Senate race in Pennsylvania, especially. There's there's a lot of races to choose from, as you alluded to. But uh, this showdown between Fetterman and Oz, it is neck and neck. It's in a crucial swing state and one that I think is representative of a lot of the American uh, population in general. And I think it's a test for Democrats to see you know, if they have a different kind of candidate. Can that work for him, even if that candidate you know, lends towards more uh, progressive uh, policy views that, that maybe some in the middle don't agree with? So I think that race especially is going to be very important for swinging the Senate and just very important for both parties to read what does this mean for the kind of candidates we put up in the future. Julie, you're in London, uh, University College of London. What are the folks on the street that you talk to, what do they think about our politics in this midterm election and kind of where we're going? <laughs> yeah, as someone said to me today, said it's it's a bit farcical, isn't it? <laughs> Just uh, you know, a bit of a circus and stuff. And and again, this is coming out of a, a rather rowdy uh, fall here in the UK. So yep. I think there is a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of I think confusion, if you will, about the potential for Trump to make this strong comeback right. and how he still has that hold of a grip on the party. I think there's some concern around Biden and what kind of leader he can or will be in the future. And again, you know, I think a lot of the world still looks to the U.S. as this, uh, you know, kind of model, this pillar for democracy and this kind of concern that if that even wobbles a little bit or appears a little bit right. shaky, what does that mean for everyone else? All right, great stuff. Uh, Dr. Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Center on U.S. Politics at the University College of London and a Duke Blue Devil. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. COP27, that's the United Nations Climate Change Conference taking place in Egypt. Is that right, Katie? Egypt. That's Sounds about are. right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got some Bloomberg News, Bloomberg Intelligence folks over there. There's a lot going on. I want to check in with Rob Barnett. He's a senior analyst, team lead for European Energy Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. You're based in London here. What are you looking for, if anything, out of COP27? Or is this just going to be a lot of rhetoric coming out about climate change? I like the way you described it rhetoric. At the end of the day, this kind of stuff maybe moves the needle, but what I really look at is the bottom-up build-out of policies that we're seeing. So in the U.S., you've got the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the real deal. That's what matters. In Europe, we've got the Repower EU package. These kinds of things matter. Whether we get some kind of grand global kumbaya kind of idea around reducing emissions out in 2050. You know, that's great, but uh, the the real stuff that matters is the near-term policy push as opposed to these very long-term emissions goals. So, Rob, when you think about the near-term policy push, get specific. Give us some names here. Uh, among the clean energy names that I know that you cover, which companies uh, have the most at stake here or the most to gain? Well, look, I think the clean energy space doesn't need policy as much as the policymakers think they do. The wind and solar industry are generally growing very fast. If you look at SunPower, which reported this morning 67% growth in the top line in 3Q, uh, SolarEdge just yesterday 59% growth in phase at the end of last month, 81% growth. The solar industry is growing incredibly quickly. Now, the wind industry a bit more tepid here in the near term, but we think there's a lot of potential for a company like Vestas, they're the world's largest wind turbine manufacturer, to really pick up the pace and grow a lot more quickly. In fact, we think consensus is way too pessimistic about the growth opportunity that they have in front of them. All right. So, Rob, I know you're ensconced over in London, but we do have some elections here today in the United States. Does the What's the energy industry? What are they hoping for here in this midterm election? Well, I think we're seeing a real divergence in the U.S. in terms of the Republican and Democratic views on the right way forward. But I would say that it's very unlikely that I think the a future Republican Congress would roll back, say, the Inflation Reduction Act. That That's there. Those subsidies are likely to stay in place. And you got to keep in mind some of the sunniest 
and windiest places also happen to be uh, <laughs> Republican districts. So, uh, you know, I think it's the same kind of thing. You know, theoretically, do you, do you need the policy to grow quickly? Maybe you actually don't, but you're not going to turn it down. And in the places that have Republican lawmakers, they're certainly going to want to have those dollars flowing into these big kind of solar and wind infrastructure projects. And Rob, I'm going through the headlines uh, back at COP27. One from this morning, Mark Carney sees a, quote, wall of opportunity uh, in renewable energy assets. Mark Carney, I mean, many might know him as the former Bank of England governor, but he's now also the vice chair at Brooklyn Brookfield Asset Management. He's also co-chair of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So uh, he's involved with the space. But the idea of a wall of opportunity in clean energy what are the best parts of the wall to get a little more specific from that comment? Is it wind? Is it solar? Which looks better right now? Well, there's no doubt that the near-term, fastest-growing segment of the energy space, no matter what way you cut it, is solar. Demand is just growing so quickly there. Wind has a lot of potential. And you bring up Mark Carney. You know, the great thing about COP27 and everything that's being discussed, there's this idea about whether 1.5 degrees is still possible. And I would say, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and and maybe the discussion's really around 2 degrees, but either way, you're talking about billions, no, excuse me, trillions of dollars worth of investment that's going to occur over the next few decades in the energy space, and increasingly that allocation is going to go towards Solar, for sure, but also wind. And then I'd also be looking at things like hydrogen. We know that wind and solar are intermittent. They're not going to be the only solution. There's going to be other stuff in play. So keep an eye on this space. It's going to grow so quickly. Hey, Rob, but, but, you know, in the near term here, again, you're in London, so you're, you're closer to what's happening in terms of Russia and Ukraine and many uh, fallouts from that conflict, most not- or you know, notably the energy fallout and the di- disruption in energy supply. You know, we're moving to a, a greener energy grid, but boy, you still need the the fossil fuel stuff, and we're going to need that for another couple of decades, probably. How do you balance that? How are some of these energy policymakers trying to balance that? It's a great point, and I like to consider myself in the energy realist camp. <laughs> Just the fact that you need all of this um, new wind and solar does not preclude the fact that today we are in very precarious supply-demand balance situation for both oil and gas. And so we need more new supply that's ideally in friendly countries. And so I think you're right. And that might be a question for the U.S. Congress to ultimately consider, right? I know the Republicans have a very uh, much more pro-supply perspective on, on some of the fossil fuels. And some of that could be really useful in the near term. We used to talk about natural gas as a bridge fuel. It's kind of the low carbon cousin of coal or oil. And right now it's got a bad rap. Particularly because of the geopolitics around Russia and Ukraine. But the bottom line is that in the near term, we are going to continue to use a tremendous amount of fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, even if peak demand for those fuels is on the horizon, uh, 
the decline rates aren't going to, or sorry, excuse me, the demand isn't going to roll off so fast that it will exceed the natural decline rate. So you've got to invest in the space even if demand is going down. All right, Rob, good stuff. As always, uh, Rob Barnett, he's a senior analyst. He's a team lead for our European energy uh, business over there at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's been covering the energy business for a long time. He's got a great sense of the business, the economics of the energy business, as well as the policy. And he has a haircut that I do not approve of, Katie. I mean, I've been, ever since I've known the guy, he's got to get it cut. You know, you're but pretty just, clean cut, though. I'm pretty clean cut. His is out there, folks. So, um, But he knows what he's talking about when it comes to energy. So that's why we like chatting with him. Mandeep Singh, technology analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Dan Ives, senior equity analyst with Wedbush Securities. Uh, thanks, uh, gents, for joining us here. A little technology roundtable here. Hey, Dan, I'll start with you here. Um, Twitter, I mean, I'm sorry, Lyft, uh, Uber, I don't know. How do you think about this business model in a, in a time where we've got inflation all over the place? How do you think about those uh, user, the, those stories? Yeah, I mean, Paul, I, I think Uber, they're navigating well. I mean, I think you saw that with earnings, and this actually business model is starting to play out positively and profitable. Lyft, they're essentially the little brother to Uber. And I think over their skis, it was a disappointing quarter. And there's some potential for turnaround. But I think there's a clear delineation now between the business models when you look at Uber and Lyft. But Dan, what's interesting to me, if I look at the stocks that you cover, I see a buy rating on Lyft. I see a buy rating on Uber. And I'm hoping you can square that circle for me because it seems like a pretty zero-sum game from my seat. If you're bullish on one, maybe you're bearish on the other. But is that too binary? Yeah, look, I think it's a little too binary because our view is to play ride-sharing overall, domestic and globally. They're the, clearly the two best ways to play it. I think Lyft, I do think this is a bit of an overreaction in terms of what we're seeing in the stock. But ultimately, Uber is our best way to play the ride-sharing globally. And I think it also on food delivery, and, it, and it's profitable. And I don't necessarily view it as a zero-sum game. But no doubt, I mean, Lyft, th th this is a pivotal few quarters ahead for them. And I think last night was clearly a bit put in the penalty box. Yeah. Hey, Mandeep, you know, one of the key pillars to the economic model for, you know, a lot of these gig companies, uh, most notably uh, these ride-sharing companies, is the classification of their drivers. Are they independent contractors or are they employees? Where are we as an industry there uh, in that regards? Well, right now, uh, you know, both Uber and Lyft are treating their drivers as independent employees, and they are paying them out a good take rate. You know, you get they get paid 75 to 80 percent of the bookings that they these companies are generating from a ride. But look, I, even then, you know, when you look at the cost structure of these companies, whether it's Lyft or Uber is much bigger, so they can spread it out. But in the case of Lyft, you know, the fact that GNA intensity is still 25 percent. It makes you wonder, you know, why are there so many costs? And they talk about layoffs and, you know, offsetting it to generate just a EBITDA uh, positive. Um, but clearly, there is something fundamentally wrong in the business model. It's because of the high variable costs. Maybe they are layering in a lot of driver subsidies to boost supply on the platform. That's what it felt like last night, that even though pricing was a tailwind, they're able to raise prices but then their gross margin is getting compressed. 
and they have to layer in driver subsidies to boost supply. So clearly, variable costs continue to pressure their margins, and I don't know if they can get to the billion dollar and adjusted EBITDA that they uh, have laid out for 2024. Well, Mandeep, that's what I was going to ask is, is what can Lyft do? I'm looking through, you know, the Bloomberg News write up of last night's earnings or this morning. It's been a long day already, <laughs> but cutting 13 percent of staff, for example, uh, is that the right sort of direction to go in? Or what would you suggest Lyft do at this point? Well, so this, uh, I guess the runway for Lyft is uh, not very clear. There seems to be a rider saturation. They, they missed on their rider uh, metric, uh, which is a key metric. And at this point of time, you have to ask yourself, can they partner with somebody on the autonomous side? That could really uh, kind of generate this top line runway, which everyone is looking for. But beyond that, you know, they had the best setup in terms of reopenings, you know, everybody traveling, and still they talked about top line decelerating to uh, almost, you know, 20%, whereas Uber, which is three times bigger, is talking about, you know, 30% growth. So they're clearly losing market share uh, in the U.S., but I I think any partnership on the autonomous side could be uh, something that investors mature. Katie, did you know that Dan Ives is a proud graduate of the Penn State University? I feel like I actually did know that okay. from yeah. filling in on this show. Yes, they and had, they had a good on. win at Indiana last week, and now we host Maryland this weekend. Dan, how do you feel yep. about it? I, I look. I think I think we go three and zero, and then ultimately near six in yeah. terms of you know. So I look, and you you lost to Michigan, Ohio State, yep. and obviously two of the best in the country. Dan Tesla, I mean, if I'm a Tesla shareholder, I love the car, I love the story. But I got a CEO who just bangs me over the head every day, it seems like. And now he goes out and spends $44 billion on Twitter. What are you telling your clients? You've been a strong, uh, longtime supporter of the stock here. What, what are you telling your clients these days? Look, I, it, it's a Twitter circus show continues to be an albatross on Tesla stock. And I mean, obviously, Tesla being down 20% since the Twitter deal. Look, I think there's two things. I think, one, there's worries that the brand of Musk is deteriorating. And we're seeing it globally, not just in terms of what's happened on Twitter, but how that could impact Tesla and just the view in this arms race. And, and, and the second thing is just attention. You know, he's focused, he's not on the factory floor. He's not focused on Tesla in terms of as a perception. Instead, it's more on Twitter and that sort of celebrity billionaire and, and it's not resonating well in a white-knuckle market. All right, Dan, good stuff. Uh, appreciate it. Um, Dan's got an over per, or outperform rating on uh, the stock. He's been a strong supporter. He's been right. Uh, he's got some headwinds, though, for Tesla this year. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst for Wedbush Securities. And Mandeep Singh, uh, he is our tech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covers all things on the tech space, along with uh, Anurag Ron and, and their team there at Bloomberg Intelligence. We'll get you all covered from a BI perspective. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Election Day uh, in uh, America. Uh, policymakers, obviously, paying close attention to what happens here in these midterms and what it'll mean for policy over the next couple of years heading into the presidential election. We check in with Nathan Dean. He's a senior policy analyst covering the United States and Latin America for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based, for better or worse, in Washington, D.C., so he's close to all this stuff. Nathan, you talk to all these Beltway types. What's the thinking today and what's the thinking tomorrow? So the thinking today is is that the House is most likely going to go to the Republicans. Um, on the Senate, you know, generally the feeling in the last week is that the GOP has done some inroads there. But I would just definitely say that today's not election day; it's election week. What we what I mean by that is uh, we may know who's going to have the House of representatives by tonight. But uh, I'd be really shocked if we wake up tomorrow morning and we know who's in control of the Senate. It could go to the end of this week, or in Georgia's case, it could go all the way to January. All the way to January. I mean, how likely is that? What's your base case on what the timeline is here? So, you know, I, I think we're, you know, with the House, I think we'll know tonight. Uh, I think that the Republicans will gain enough that we'll know tonight. For the Senate, you know, we'll have a good indication of where things are going. I mean, usually the House trends will incorporate into the Senate trends. And so I think you'll have like a general feeling this week of what likely is going to be the case scenario. And, and you know, I think if, if most people were to be given truth serum at the moment, they would say that they think that the Republicans are going to take the Senate. But, what, you know, th- these races are going to be extremely tight, and there's a lot of mail-in ballots that have to be counted. And in some of these states, they can't start counting until after the polls close. So it may take a couple of days for uh, states like Pennsylvania to catch up and finally give us an idea. But, you know, it, you, you definitely see the Republicans. I think the general consensus is around 53 to 51 seats uh, in control. All right. If that's the case, uh, Nathan, what's again, what are the policy types down in Washington? What are they thinking can get done? should get done, needs to get done from a legislative policy perspective over the next couple of years, if that's, in fact, the makeup. So you're going to see increased gridlock. But, you know, increased gridlock, it's been around since 2010. You know, you think about the Tea Party and Nancy Pelosi coming in under the Trump administration. What changes is you no longer have these economic, broad, fiscally stimulus bills. You never you no longer have reconciliation types. But what happens is, is that the legislation that gets debated gets pushed down to more sector levels. They think marijuana stocks or cryptocurrency, et cetera. And then what happens is it gets bunched up into these government resolutions. So every three to six months, the government faces a deadline, and there's this huge debate and so forth like that. Uh, but I would say that uh, the most important thing that we are telling clients right now is to watch this debt ceiling fight. It's going to come likely in September or the third quarter of next year. You know, the incoming or soon to be incoming, if you think the Republicans are going to win, Speaker of the House most likely will be Kevin McCarthy. He's already said that he wants to use this as leverage. Certainly a lot of pro- political brickmanship. We've been here before. But but both the fixed income and the equity side could be exposed. 
Nathan, I'm so grateful to have you on for so many reasons. One of them, though, is because I know that you can speak intelligently about the cryptocurrency universe. And we have some huge breaking news. Crypto exchange Binance, that is the world leader, it's going to buy rival FTX Dot com. That is according to a tweet from FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried. They said that he said that the two exchanges reached an agreement on a strategic transition transaction with Binance. Terms are undisclosed. I can hear just thousands of Bloomberg's reporters trying to find out what those terms are. But if I look at uh, SBF's tweet, as he's known, he says this of course is pending due diligence. And Nathan, let me know if this is too far outside of your realm, but. What does due diligence even look like here? You know, that one is, you know, these are two privately held companies, both not, you know, uh, you know, Bahamas and uh, Asia based and so forth like that. So the due diligence, I don't think is anything that, uh, you know, we are going to know right now. I mean, the Bloomberg reporters, as you speak, are going to go out there. What I can say, though, is that this is a game changer when it comes to policy efforts in Washington, because FTX and specifically Sam Bankman-Fried was a big proponent of coming here to lobby. And so if you're looking at the stablecoin bill that's over at the House Financial Services or the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act, which is at the Senate Ag Committee, we anticipate both of those bills coming back next year. The main question for us on the policy side is, is FTX or Binance or is somebody else going to take up the mantle? Are they going to be able to continue to push policymakers to do this? And so uh, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the first quarter of next year here in Washington because FTX was such a big proponent of that bill. Do you think this puts more fire under Washington? I mean, the debate in the crypto market has been who actually oversees the crypto market in the U.S. You just have a bunch of letters from the SEC to the CFTC, maybe Congress. No one really knows. Now you have this huge behemoth, like you said, one based in the Bahamas, one Asia-based coming together, creating this monster. I mean, do you think that this puts uh, another fire under U.S. policymakers to figure out who actually oversees this and can we get some legislation here? So I, I'm not sure if it puts new fire under policymakers, but it certainly gain, brings additional focus to it. Um, because like you said, I, I, look, I don't think cryptocurrency is going away. And if you look at the bills, the stablecoin bill that hasn't been released but is under discussion over the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Ag Bill, they do things like you know affirm Bitcoin as a commodity, affirm Ethereum as a commodity, give platforms like Coinbase or now Binance FTX the way to register with the SEC or the CFTC. None of this is really controversial from a bipartisan perspective. So as long as the crypto industry continues to push for this regulatory framework, I still remain confident that these bills can get done. The one thing, though, and when this yep. comes back to the election, is that if the Republicans take the Senate, I think those bills speed up in terms of timing because somebody like Sherrod Brown, the chairman of the Senate Banking right. Committee, wouldn't be able to oppose it. All right. Great stuff. As always, Nathan Dean, he's got that Washington, D.C. policy stuff just nailed down. He's a senior policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is based in Washington. Election Day. Uh Katie, you know, we learned a long time ago, it's the economy, stupid. That's mm -hmm. kind of the thing. I've and heard that. I've heard that as well. Uh, I'm not a political junkie, but I have heard that. And if you look at President Biden's scorecard, it's probably better than most people would give it credit for. Uh, but you really need to look at the numbers. And we have somebody who does like to look at numbers. That's Matt Winkler. He's the founder of Bloomberg News. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's got a column out today saying the Biden economy is second only to one at the midterms. So, Matt, talk to us about 
the Biden economy. How does it stack up? So thank you. Great to be with you. Uh, you know, we are Bloomberg, and so uh, we are always looking at the data. And so given that, as you said, the election is, uh, if you like, a referendum, the midterm on the economy, uh, my colleague Shinpei and I looked at more than a dozen measures of relative prosperity uh, going all the way back to the 70s, 1970s. And on uh, most of these, in fact, uh, Biden is, in fact, outperforming um, the last six of his seven predecessors. Um, everything from GDP to non-farm payrolls, for example, uh, Biden is excelling. And, uh, you know, that's just the reality, if mm -hmm. you like. And But does the average American feel that, do you think? Because as you make this point in your column that inflation is so hot right now, it's basically shredded returns across stocks and bonds. If you think about what that has meant for retirement accounts, I mean, is inflation just such a big front and center issue that that's being overlooked by voters? Well, I think part of it is uh, our profession, journalism, has focused nonstop on inflation. So, you know, you hear it over and over again. But if you look at the reality, um, many in our profession were saying we were in a recession this year, very prominently. Um, but when you've got unemployment hovering at 50-year lows, and not just a one-month, two-month wonder, people have jobs. And then you put together the, uh, if you like, all of the very generous social um, benefits that came out of COVID-19, um, you know, for example, uh, Americans are much better equipped today ever to weather this spike in prices. You've got um, the, uh, as I said, COVID-19 uh, measures that allowed consumers to build up an enormously high cash cushion. Checkable deposits, for example, for households and nonprofit organizations rose to uh, $4.89 trillion at the end of June from $1.16 trillion at the end of 2019. So that's a big, if you like, difference. And that answers your question about uh, are they better off? And the answer is, yeah, inflation's been high. But again, the cushion for that is also unprecedented. So yes, Americans have been better off. And if you take the media um, uh, out of it, uh, probably they would be saying they're better off. But the fact is we're not in a recession um, and the economy is still robust, which is why the Fed is, is raising interest rates. And just on the inflation front, inflation kind of peaked, so it would seem, with the June number of 9.1%. It's now more than a percentage point below that. And if you ask every economist that you talk to every day, day in and day out, they're telling you that the inflation alarm bells have softened significantly since the summer. And in one of your charts uh, in your piece there, you talk about the uh, the surplus or deficit as a percentage of the G GDP. And that's where the Biden administration ranks first. Uh, no one's done it better in terms of reducing our deficit. And I know, I know the president talks about it, but that's just probably a financial and economic issue that most Americans probably can't really grasp. It's, it's well, more of, that's something for 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Well, except for the fact that the Republicans persistently bring it up, and they have repeatedly. And as you say, the fact is, the almost 10 percentage point decline in the federal budget deficit is a percentage of GDP to 5.4% from 15.6%. Mm -hmm. 
uh, that's unprecedented. And you have to go back to Clinton, Presidents Clinton and Carter, who reduced the deficit 2.4 percentage points, 1.1 percentage points, respectively. Having said all that, the deficit went up under Donald Trump. It went up under George H.W. Bush. Mm -hmm. It went up, you know, under Ronald Reagan. Um, it went up under Barack Obama, and it went up under George W. Bush. So this is an issue that Republicans have persistently raised, and Biden has a very credible record after the midterms, if the Republicans have the edge, saying, well, don't look at me. I'm the one who did more on this issue than anyone right. has. Right, right. Interesting stuff. All right, Matt Winkler, a great column talking about uh, President Biden here at the midterms and his economic policies. Uh, pretty darn good when you're, you know, you can compare them to uh, recent presidents. That's Matt Winkler, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg uh, interactive broker studio. As always, he doesn't mail it in, Katie. We have some folks that mail it in, but Matt's not one of them. He tends no. to come in uh, and uh, show up, so we appreciate that. Well, it is midterm election day in America. Uh, a number of key states have very, very close races that will ultimately have an impact on uh, uh, Congress, uh, the balance of power in Congress, as well as certain uh, state houses as well across the country. Let's roundtable this thing and get kind of just get some perspective here. Liam Denning, he's an opinion columnist with Bloomberg. He's going to join us to talk about, he's got a recent column out there saying the $5 gas is really affecting the midterms. Let's think, think broadly defined inflation. And then columnist John Authors also joins to get his sense of how this market may react going forward in, in what may be a little bit of a shift towards the Republican Party. Liam, I want to start with you. You've got your column out there. I think it kind of goes to that issue. You know, you can talk about reducing the federal deficit all you want if you're Joe Biden, but at the end of the day, it's what I'm paying at the pump, what I'm paying at the supermarket. That, that's a tough challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a fact of American politics that any incumbent party takes the blame for where pump prices are and um you know even though they they generally lack any means of affecting them in the short term um energy is definitely a uh high up on the agenda in this uh, in this election um if you look at the um the pew center's uh polling of of registered voters it's it's interesting actually energy is up there as as a as an issue it's above violent crime it's above immigration it's above abortion um, it's also curiously the only one on which the same proportion of Republican and Democratic voters uh, agree it, it being a high-profile issue. And what I was trying to do with this um, with this column was to say, you know, obviously we've seen high gasoline prices this year. They hit an all-time peak of uh, average uh, average level of five bucks in the summer. And I was just trying to show that psychologically that is damaging for the democrats but actually when you show show it in the context of uh, of average incomes um you know the dent to the american wallet is is quite significantly below what we've seen in prior price spikes right yeah i'm looking at that same uh, number you're looking at that five dollars back in june we're now down at about three dollars and eighty cents so it's come down pretty substantially but still maybe the the damage was done in terms of a narrative. And, and John Authors, you know, mm. it, it appears that, um, you know, from some of the rhetoric and some of the uh, the reporting I've seen that, you know, there's a chance that this uh, election, this midterm will tilt more towards the Republicans. If that is, in fact, the case, how do you think markets will react? Well, it, it would be a very big surprise if, if the Republicans don't at the very least win the House. 
Uh, and if that isn't fairly clear by the time we go to, to bed tonight. Um, I therefore think as that's largely in the price, we're probably not going to see that big a reaction to it. I think what would make for much more uh, interesting outcomes would be exactly how policy towards Ukraine changes. I've heard various uh, straws in the wind suggesting that uh, if there is a Republican control of Congress, it becomes that much harder for the administration to support Ukraine all the way because there are these currents within the Republican Party that uh, uh, that, that are opposed to uh, that are opposed to uh, uh, conflict with with Russia, and that that might mean that um, uh, Zelensky and Ukraine comes under more pressure from the states to um, to sue for peace. Um, that would be market positive. Right. Um, any number of we, we don't have time to go through the huge issue of whether that's actually good news. But in terms of the short and medium term for markets, that would be very market positive if this leads to some meaningful resolution of the uh, the Ukraine conflict sooner rather than later. I think that's the single biggest thing. The, the greatest concern plainly would be playing games with the debt ceiling. Yep. Um, so all third years of presidential cycles are great. Um, as lots and lots of sell side people have pointed out, one exception where it only just got positive right at the end of the year was 20, uh, 2011, and that was the year of the debt ceiling uh, debacle. Right. Um, when S&P actually downgraded US Treasury debt. I, if, if the Republicans are serious, they're going to try doing that again, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. I, I, I'm not sure they are, but they, they're talking as though they're prepared to do that. Hey, Liam, going back to you, I'm just thinking about, again, Inflation broadly defined, it's it's an, it's a headwind certainly for this administration and for the Democratic Party here. But then when you think about just the energy and the five dollar gas, you know, you just wonder why President Biden and the Democrats continue to hammer on big energy. You know, whereas they presumably could be the solution here to the problem. Well, I think Biden is is caught between two uh, competing objectives. Right, one is. Um, one is this uh, this sweeping green agenda that was a, an integral part of his platform, and then the other is the reality that um, you know in the meantime, while you're waiting for the energy transition to come along, uh, you're going to face uh, periodic energy crises, and you're still going to be relying on the incumbent energy system. And so we've seen, I think, Biden, you know, swing between, you know, trying to cajole the domestic. Uh, exploration and production sector into producing more oil and then uh, realizing that um, you know his tools for addressing pump prices are fairly limited then resorting to the rhetoric of blaming the industry for not doing more um, you know I think part of the problem here is as, as I said you know even five dollar gasoline uh, is not as big of a bite out of disposable personal income as it used to be I think yep. the big problem uh, the Democrats face is that this has been the single this year has seen the single biggest jump uh, in terms of the proportion of disposable personal income taken by gasoline uh, on record and that's data going back to the late 1950s I think it's the whiplash effect on consumers uh, that Biden and the Democrats fear
Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. Hey, John, real quick, 30 seconds. Are you in the camp yeah. that says gridlock is good for markets? It's almost always good for bond markets because it tends to mean that you don't spend. That's why the, the critical question is whether the Republicans would really do brinkmanship over the, de the debt scene again. I, I, I would be more cautious about whether it's really so good for stocks. Um, there are things that the federal government can do that will actually benefit some companies. Uh, and there are times when you do want clarity and yep. harmonious government. But for bonds, yes. Good bonds stuff. All right, we'll see how it plays out. We're not going to probably won't know tomorrow morning, but certainly over the next several days and maybe even weeks. Uh, Liam Denning, he's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, covers uh, energy, amongst other things, uh, joining us, as well as uh, John uh, Authors, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Join us to give us a sense kind of how this may play out from a markets perspective on this election day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.